You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Hi, welcome to Formed. Welcome back to our series of shows on the confessions. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Klein. I teach here at the Augustan Institute. I'm here with my colleague, Dr. John Seahorn. And in our last episode, uh, we talked a little bit about Augustine's intellectual conversion on how sort of discovering the truth and changing his mind about who God is was a significant part of his um, coming into the Catholic faith. But a lot of people already kind of have the impression that the Confessions is a very sort of solitary, soul-searching, existential kind of conversion. Mm. And so in this episode, we thought that we would talk about the other dimension of his conversion, which is kind of the ecclesial conversion, uh, that Augustine's true conversion is his baptism. It's not, you know, just the moment in the garden when he hears the voices of children. It's not just sort of the grasping of a concept, but it's really um, submitting himself to the church uh, and coming into the church through her sacraments. So that's what we uh, what thought we'd talk about today. So why don't we just kind of kick it off with the general question, where where does the church feature for you? When you think of the confessions and the uh, ecclesial dimension, where, where does your mind go to where the church really features? Well, well kind of all over the place, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, there are, there are a number of of, um, of angles we could take in approaching this. Um, you know, one thing I think we'll talk about in a future episode um, is actually the very form of the confessions as a prayer. Because on the one hand, this is Augustine uh, speaking to God. But on the, on the other hand, um, you know, he knows he's going to publish it. <laughs> he knows other people are going to read it as well. And so there's already a kind of um, communal aspect uh to this. So maybe maybe one place uh, to start is um, with one of the, the most famous um, aspects of the Confessions, which is the role of St. Augustine's mother, uh, St. Monica. Uh, right. So uh, Monica uh, uh, comes from um, a fairly kind of simple, pious uh, North African Catholic background. Um, and really throughout the text, um, Monica, who is very much not uh, sort of idealized mm -hmm. or perfect, uh, nonetheless, uh, is sort of representative of the church for Augustine. We talked earlier about um, um, about the way in which uh, Augustine says in book three that he had drunk in the name of Christ with his mother's milk, and that that had really uh, had really marked him. And um, and Monica's role going forward, this is something that's familiar to us. You know, a, a lot of Parents in particular have uh, devotion to St. Monica, um, perhaps especially if they have um, children or other close loved ones who've fallen away from the practice of the faith. Um, but, you know, what's interesting to me about Monica is that, yes, it's her, her prayers and her tears uh, that, that um, God uses to draw Augustine to the church. Um, there's the famous line at the end of book three when an unnamed bishop, um, it's sometimes incorrectly ascribed to a, attributed to, to St. Ambrose, but it's an unnamed bishop in North Africa says um, that it's not possible for the son of, of such tears to, to perish. But the point I wanted to make was um, something about those tears. And so I thought maybe we could look really quickly at um, just a couple of very brief passages in book five. Um, and if you recall from an earlier episode, um, when we talked a little bit about the structure of the first kind of two thirds or so of the confessions, that book five is this turning point. Um, Augustine, we see him in books two, three, and four, falling into the three lusts of 1 John 2.16. 16. 
in book five, we have this turning point, and then we see Augustine sort of um, beginning to experience God's healing of, of those lusts in books six, seven, and eight. So it's really interesting that this, this comes in, um, in book five, if I can find it. Um, and, uh, and, and the kind of role that is ascribed to St. Monica here. Um, so the, the first one that I want to point to is it's at the end of chapter seven of book five, uh, 5.7.13. Um, and, uh, he's talking about his, um, his sort of disillusionment with uh, the Manichaeans who we've talked about before. Uh, so it's like, well, where's he going to go now? And Augustine says, your hands, my God, in the secret of your providence did not forsake my soul. Out of the blood of my mother's heart, through the tears she poured out by day and night, a sacrifice was offered up to you in my behalf, and you dealt with me in a wondrous way. So he sees his mother's tears as a way in which um, God is providentially um, showing mercy to him already. But notice how he talks about those tears as um, a sacrifice that's offered up to God on Augustine's behalf out of the blood of her heart. It's really strong language. And if you kind of remember that language, um, it sheds it sheds a lot of light on something Augustine says just a few pages later in chapter 9, uh, section 17 of, of book 5 where he's talking about his mother and, and he, he notes that she never let a day pass without an offering at your altar, going without fail to church twice a day in the morning and at evening. So she would go to pray at church. She would attend mass every day. And so what we see in Monica is um, not just a mother who loves her son and who prays for her son sort of privately, but whose who's, uh, prayerful tears and tearful prayers are formed um, by the sacrifice of Christ that she's encountering in the church, in the church's liturgy, um, in the communion of the church, in the representation of Christ's sacrifice uh, in, in the Holy Mass. And then that's what allows her tears to be a kind of efficacious sacrifice for Augustine. And I think once you kind of recognize that Monica is sort of a, a representative of the church, a sort of part for the whole of the church, then all of a sudden it's impossible not to see the church mm -hmm. literally everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you'll start to notice that sometimes mm -hmm. when Augustine's speaking to her about Monica, he's simultaneously speaking to her about the church. So mm -hmm. probably one of the most obvious examples is in book one, when Augustine's talking about how in a childhood illness, he asked to be baptized. Uh, and he says, mm -hmm. um, you know, he asked, both uh, his mother, his earthly mother, and his mother, the church, mm -hmm. for baptism. And it's sort of the kind of, you know, Monica Monica speaking, but then, uh, you know, Augustine after conversion understands that she was acting sort of on behalf of or, or in the place of the church. And I thought about that uh, with that line about drinking in the mother's milk as well, because, of course, in the, in the early Christian rite of baptism, uh, after you come up out of the water, you received a cup of milk and honey. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the to us, milk doesn't like immediately seem related to baptism. But I often thought when he says, I drank in the name of Christ with milk, uh, that that may also be an allusion to this part of the baptismal rite where before you receive communion, but after you're baptized, you receive sort of the milk and honey of the promised land. I think, I think that's right. And that point about milk is that's such a powerful image for Augustine that he uses uh, frequently, right? Because one of the things we talked about before was that at, at kind of the the root, the rotten root of of all of the expressions of sin that Augustine wrestled with and that all of us wrestle with uh, is pride. And 
Um, mm -hmm. And the, the proud don't want to admit that they need milk, mm -hmm. that they need to become uh, infants. And so milk is also something he uses very frequently uh, for the incarnation. So God mm -hmm. becoming man is sort of like the meat of the angels that we can't eat becoming uh, the milk that we can receive. And so he also then has Eucharistic allusions to the milk. Uh, that it's, right. it's the same food when a mother eats food and then she gives uh, milk to her baby. It's the same food, but it's been processed through her body so they can receive it. And so he compares that to what the incarnation does for us, it processes mm -hmm. God through Christ's body so that mm -hmm. we can receive it in the Eucharist. And so it's a kind of interesting parallel there. Yeah, and you know, that, that point about the incarnation um, being like milk for us and, and Christ sort of stooping down in humility uh, in order to save us, I think brings us back in an interesting way to what Augustine himself has to kind of come to learn about the church. Mm -hmm. There's there's another uh, passage um, that it's actually one of my favorites in the Confessions, um, early in Book Eight. So it's it's before the big conversion scene in in the garden, and Augustine goes to uh, this this aged priest in Milan who was very well respected. Um, he um, uh, and and so Augustine goes and and kind of tells him the situation and says, "Well, what should I do?" And this priest, Simplicianus is his name tells Augustine the story of um, another famous philosopher and orator, this, this great kind of public intellectual in Rome uh, named Victorinus, who had become a Christian. And Simplicianus had known him and talked about how Victorinus would come to him and say, well, you know, I'm already a Christian. And he'd say, I already believe all these things you teach. I, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the incarnation even, right? I believe in all these things. Um, so I'm already a Christian. And Simplicianus over and over would say, um, I won't believe you're a Christian until I see you in church. And um, and Victorinus sort of teases him. He says, oh, so walls make a Christian, right? Yeah. And, and of course, there is a way in which they don't, right? You might have heard, you know, the. I remember when I was growing up, I would hear people say, um, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the, the kind of glibness of that that expression covers over something really important that Simplicianus is trying to help Victorinus understand. Um, and that's the fact that um, if we really do believe in the incarnation, the one we believe in is one who emptied himself, um, not just to satisfy some sort of, um, you know, complicated secret demands or something like that, but the one who emptied himself to become one with us and to form us as one in him. And so in, in other of his writings, Augustine actually um, talks about this really clearly that if, if you really wanna know Christ, you have to know him in three ways and you can't skip any of them, right? So you have to know him as God, right? As the eternal son of God. You also have to know him as man, as the one who emptied himself and became incarnate uh, for us and for our salvation. But you also have to know him as the church. You have to recognize him in his members. And in Ferguson, this is this just makes sense. There's no and if you have taught a number of classes on Augustine, and when you try to teach a class about the incarnation and not mention the church, mm. it's it's virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. Because for Augustine, the body of Christ is the church. Like mm -hmm. that's just what it is. And so if you want to belong to the body of Christ so that, you know, through his body, go where the head has gone. This is mm -hmm. one of his favorite things mm -hmm. to talk about. The totus Christus, Christ the head who's in heaven and Christ's body is on earth. So if you want to go where the head has gone, you have to be in his body. 
which is the church. So there is no sense in which you can be a Christian in the abstract. And that's what's at the heart of that kind of story with uh, Simplicianus is that the, the, the ironic part from a modern perspective, as you're saying, the answer to that question kind of is yes. You know, do the walls make you a Christian? Yes. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean a building makes you a Christian. What it means is that you can't belong to God in spirit. Right. You can't belong to God because of a certain set of beliefs or ideas that you have. You have to actually belong to God as a whole human person, body and soul. And that's what a baptism does. Baptism right. is a sacrament. So it addresses both sort of the physical and spiritual dimensions of us. And that's how we're united to Christ. It's very concrete and incarnational, as you're saying. And I think it's interesting that that story is in book eight, because Augustine's basically telling us, this isn't my conversion. My conversion happens in the nine, book nine when I become baptized. Uh, and so this is kind of a somewhat of a debated question, I guess, among scholars, why the description of Augustine's baptism is so short. Um, you know, maybe if you've read the Confessions, it, you kind of passed over it or didn't didn't see it, or people think maybe it should be more dramatic. So I just thought I would turn to that. It's in uh, book nine. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, chapter six. Chapter six. See, mm -hmm. you're ahead of me already. Nine, chapter six. Um, okay, so he says, <clears throat> talking about his friend Olypius uh, being baptized two, and then it said in the, yeah, the last paragraph, uh, and so we were baptized and all our dread about our earlier lives dropped away from us. And that's it. That's all he does uh, to describe his baptism. And on the one hand, maybe you think he, he should have said more, but on the other hand, this actually makes perfect sense to me uh, because, you know, if you're writing <clears throat> like a romance novel. You know, you don't spend 10 pages describing like what people were wearing at the wedding and like who the guests were and like what a nice wedding it was, right? You spend the book describing people falling in love and the betrothment, you know, that's that's sort of where the drama is. And But at the same time, you know, if the wedding hadn't happened, there's no book, you know, there's no story, there's no end point, uh, what is it all for? Uh, and so I think of like, you know, that old, Pride and Prejudice miniseries with Colin Firth and it's kind of old but it's you know I really like it and how like the last you know the whole the whole thing is about like you know, all the misunderstandings and the wooing of Darcy Darcy's wooing Elizabeth and all this stuff and then you know the last scene is the marriage and they drive off in the carriage but like so it's not it doesn't doesn't dwell on the point and yet that's the happy ending right that's the happy ending and the excitement of the story mm. um I think the other thing we can say is it's not, it's no small thing to say and all our dread about our earlier lives dropped away from us. Uh, because, Especially yeah. if you've listened to all the dread he's expressed in the previous <laughs> books. Yeah, because what as in the story, as in the kind of analogy that I'm making with a, a love story, um, without the baptism, he can't tell this story, right? Without mm -hmm. the dread dropping away and without him being past that point 10 years later when he can look back and see what God has done and see where God has brought him. There's no confessions. Uh, and so I actually think that it's a very telling line, uh, even though even though it's a short line. And of course, uh, we briefly talked already about the, the structure of the confessions, but you know, in the structure, you can really tell that the baptism is it's kind of the key moment, right? And book one is his birth, book nine is his rebirth, and book five mm -hmm. is the center point. So uh, you know, it's very clear that he, in his mind, 
that this is kind of the the happy ending of the story, although not quite because there's there's four more books, but a provision a provisional happy ending, the hope of a true happy ending. Or at least, yeah, I mean, it's it's the beginning of the happy ending, right? This is right. it's the point of entry into this mystery of Christ, the humble mediator who's actually able to offer genuine healing from his pride and from all of the the terrible fruits of mm -hmm. of his pride that he'd experienced and that and that continued healing happens in the continued life of the church which is really what the next four books are about so there's a very mm -hmm. another kind of interesting structural feature is that so book nine <clears throat> you have the baptism but at the end of book nine uh, you have the death of monica mm -hmm. uh, which i would kind of see as you know his baptism is the hope of a happy ending monica's is a true happy ending it's kind of like the foretaste of the ending he hopes to have but at the but the end of that, he notes that Monica asks Augustine to remember her every day at the altar, mm -hmm. uh, and and this turns out to be in a sense prophetic, right? Because Augustine becomes a priest, and so he really is there every day, even if he didn't really want to be, I suppose. But you know, he was there every day, and so at the end of book nine, you have kind of this Euchar strong Eucharistic note, and then book ten is centered on on memory. Right. And so do this in memory of me. And so you have a kind of Eucharistic transition from the baptism of book nine to the book on memory in book 10. And then the last three books that are really about the life of the church. That's right. Um, I do think it's it's sort of fun to mention uh, a great irony about uh, Monica's death at the end of book nine, uh, because Monica had asked for um, you know, to be remembered at at the altar. Um, during during the offering of the Eucharist and for people to pray for her. And so Augustine asks his readers to pray for her. But ironically, um, uh, on the strength of what Augustine wrote about his mother, she was canonized so that she's Saint Monica. And so uh, actually, instead of praying for her salvation, we ask for her to, to pray for ours just as she prayed for Augustine's. So it's kind of a funny uh, <laughs> inversion yeah. there. Yeah, there's also a neat, I, I meant to mention this when you brought it up. There's a neat, the neat historical note is that uh, this is the earliest evidence of daily mass is from these, from these parts in the mm -hmm. confessions that we know that uh, mass was offered every day because Monica went there mm -hmm. apparently twice a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I just think, you know, speaking of mothers again, this was, especially in the North African church, this was um, one of the most prominent images for the mm -hmm. church is as a mother. And so this sort of brings us back to that, that point we've been making that, um, we're, if we read the confessions just as sort of Augustine's personal search for self-realization, for truth, for meaning, we're going to completely miss his point. We might learn a lot and it might be it might be fruitful in certain ways, but it won't be the point that he was making because um, Augustine completely agreed with something, a line that, that uh, was famously written by one of his sort of North African predecessors in the third century, St. Cyprian who said um, that you cannot have God for your father if you don't have the church for your mother. And again, we might ask, well, why? Like, why does God care what institution we belong to? Um, but that's because we're not looking at it the way that Augustine and Cyprian and their fathers looked at it. They didn't see the church primarily as an institution. It is an institution, but it's an institution in service of this deep mystery of Christ's solidarity with us, of Dr. Klein mentioned earlier the expression totus Christus, uh, which is Latin for the whole Christ, meaning not just Jesus, the head of the body, but as St. Paul says, also all of us as his members. And so to say no to being born anew in mm -hmm. the font of baptism to this mother, to say no to the brothers and sisters that Christ came uh, to die for, to be raised for, to bring to new life as sons and daughters of God 
is actually to say no to the mystery of Christ. Augustine is completely dead set against any any sort of DIY Christianity. And I mean, salvation for Augustine is to belong to Christ and to each other. I mean, that's what salvation is. And right. so, if you it's a, if you want to belong to this new family, you know how do how do you enter a family? You have to do it by birth. You have to go through baptism. There's no way mm -hmm. to sort of just yeah be in this family by sort of sheer force of will or by lots of good feelings or lots of right thoughts. This is really strong, as you're saying, in North African Christianity, the idea of uh, ba uh, the baptismal font is the womb of the church, uh, and that your salvation really depends on entering a new lineage, no longer from Adam, but from the new Adam from Christ, uh, and be belonging to him in that way. Uh, and so, as I'm saying for Augustine, to think of a kind of personal conversion apart from the church doesn't really make any sense. I, and I was just thinking about the line from Cyprian, you can't have uh, God for your father without church is your mother, as being a kind of an additional corrective to the transition from Platonism, because of course the Platonists mm -hmm. would call God father, but not in the way, not in the Trinitarian ecclesial right. way that a Christian meant it. Uh, and so <clears throat> to, to really to not be able to call the church your mother is to have a wrong understanding of who God is and how he wants you to belong to him. Uh, and so that's that's really essential, and it's essential on even the most basic level for Augustine, which is what was Augustine's problem? He was too proud for the church. Mm -hmm. He thought he was too smart for the church. He thought the Bible wasn't very well written, and mm -hmm. he didn't want the religion of his pious mother. He wanted to run away to Rome and, you know, left her on the shore uh, in North Africa. And her pursuing of him, right, becomes a kind of image for the church pursuing Augustine. And so Augustine's conversion, I think, is very instructive in this way for modern is because it's very not cool. Like the last thing we want to do is go back to mom's pious religion and, you know, move back home. And, and that's what Augustine does. And he thinks that, that the, the scriptures and the church are all designed to, to break our pride uh, and to help us rely on God ever more deeply. And that, that he comes to realize that that's what he needs more than anything. Yeah. I know that point about the fatherhood of God, I think is also really important that um, it matters how we call God Father. And this is another thing that, that many of the church fathers emphasized is the significance of the fact that when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't teach us to say, my Father. He taught us to say, our Father. And of course, we can call God my Father, and he does have that individual relationship with each of us, but it's never something purely private. It's always in the context of, uh, of a share in uh, Jesus's sonship. Right. Mm -hmm. One that that um, by its nature uh, is shared with others. Well, that is wonderful. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about in the confessions is the sacraments and the confessions. So hopefully if you're reading it and you didn't maybe notice this ecclesial dimension, it really jumps out to you now that we've talked about it. Uh, and I hope you'll continue to join us uh, for our next topic, which will be uh, thinking of the confessions as prayer. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, eBooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustine Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.